Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report number 31. At 10 years, sitting at a 3.92. Five-year break-evens, complete a disaster. In fact, just like yesterday, today's five-year break-even chart looks even larger than it did yesterday, and we don't like it larger in this case. Take a look at the chart. Bottom right corner, you can see we're sitting at 2.63. This is the highest level of inflation break-even uncertainty that we have experienced since October. Uh, obviously, the stock market was not very, very happy in December, but you can see that doesn't necessarily align with exactly where break-even sit. Today, we do get the FOMC minutes uh, from uh, February 1st. Not entirely clear how much that'll really matter, given that uh, most of the data and uh, break-even rise here occurred after those FOMC minutes, but we'll we'll talk and give a little bit more of a preview a little bit later in this video. Uh, but yeah, sitting at 2.63, this is definitely something where I, I believe the Federal Reserve is going to be paying attention to. Okay, you know, we're, we're starting to see those break-evens move up again a little bit. Now again, financial conditions as a result tighten, so potentially those expectations could, could remain sort of range-bound, but it's nice to see them trending down, not trending up. So something to pay attention to. Uh, of course, another big thing that we've got to pay attention to has to do with Russia. Russia, 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 of course. Uh, Russia going crazy, sort of, again, with um, their threats over START treaties. Uh, let's, uh, let's explain that a little bit. So in case you haven't heard, Vladimir Putin gave a speech, and in his speech, he essentially talked about how they're going to give up United States inspections of their nuclear facilities. This happens at the same time as China is arguing, hey, we want less U.S. big four auditors in China because we're worried about our data security. And really what you're seeing is China and Russia trying to align in what I like to call saber rattling in suggesting that we don't really want the United States to supervise anymore. We want sort of our own freedom and our hegemonial authority, which is one of the big reasons why you have China so much uh, being aggressive, should I say, towards Taiwan, because they want power within their region. And of course, in the Eastern Bloc between China, India, and Russia, if, if they can strengthen and fight against the United States, then they see themselves as uh, being more stable in uh, at least their economic uh, progress. So uh, you're seeing a lot of this, uh, not just with nuclear posturing, but also any other kind of posturing as an attack against America right now is uh, escalating. Uh, consider, for example, the START Treaty. The START Treaty was a treaty that was signed in 2010. It's been used previously as well. It's had multiple versions of it. And really, the START Treaty is a, a tool to try to encourage both sides between Russia and the United States to reduce their strategic offensive arms, basically nuclear weapons. Uh, now, they don't really limit the number of nuclear warheads you're allowed to have and stockpile. What they really do is just limit the launchers you're able to have. So the idea is, hey, well, if you have a limited amount of launchers, or if we have similar amount of launchers, hey, you know, we're, we're in a place where it's not like one of us has 20 times as many launchers as the other, and uh, we can sort of observe each other a little bit more. You can look at us, we can look at you, we'll all spy on each other with satellites. We do the same thing to China. China's been criticizing us for years about 
building and, and expanding our sort of nuclear stockpile and arsenal, while at the same time China's kind of like, hmm, maybe this isn't such a bad idea. But China's like way behind Russia and the United States in terms of a nuclear stockpile. In fact, there's a phenomenal uh, infographic that just shows you that really the two countries uh, that you really have to worry about when it comes to nuclear arms and nuclear saber rattling are the United States and Russia. Uh, out of NATO, NATO's got somewhere around 5,943 nuclear warheads. The U.S. contributes 5,428 of those. So almost all of them, just shy of about, well, probably in excess here of about 90%. Russia supposedly has up to about 5,977, but many argue that they've only got, uh, you know, 1,185 uh, launchers, and maybe, maybe a lot of their crap doesn't work as well as ours because, again, the U.S. defense budget is the largest in the world. And China's spending somewhere around uh, $250 million, or at least aiming to spend that on defense this year. Uh, this year. Uh, Russia defense spending uh, a fraction compared to the United States. And, and, and really, uh, the United States spending at nearly uh, a trillion dollars is, is pretty pretty ridiculous. But uh, to make this clear, if the United States is sitting at 900 to a uh, trillion dollars in, in defense spending, uh, this is in excess of $900 billion. Uh, and uh, China's looking at $250 billion. You've got Russia sitting at about 84 So when you align and see, like, oh, yeah, Russia's got as many technically nuclear warheads as China, or as the United States, that is, you've got to ask yourself, well, if they've got a defense budget that's like 7 to 8% of ours, and their work in Ukraine has been pretty embarrassing so far in terms of expectations versus reality and rumors about, uh, and, and not just rumors, but uh, quite frankly, videos of, of uh, Russian rations that are 30 years old or uh, bulletproof vests that aren't and helmets that are uh, facades of plastic made to seem like they're actually steel war helmets. It's, it's quite embarrassing. Now, some argue that uh, a lot of the making fun of sort of the Russian military's capabilities are just uh, propaganda uh, and that it's uh, that it's easy to, uh, on the internet, make fun of Russia. But uh, then again, who knows? Uh, this chart, though, very interesting. Take a look at this. This gives you the nuclear warhead inventory. Uh, and again, I personally think this is a little bit uh, misleading because it, it somewhat suggests that uh, Russian nuclear warheads are anywhere near as capable as those from the United States. Uh, and uh, so this particular infographic suggests, and, and the estimates for this are not perfect. That's why the numbers I gave with NATO at about uh, 5943 should be relatively close to where we are. Uh, of course, the argument here is that Russia has now moved up to about uh, 6,257 uh, warheads, whereas the U.S. potentially sitting at about 5,550, relatively similar to estimates provided by the BBC in October. Uh, but again, to me, uh, you know, the fact that you've got the two largest nuclear countries uh, in the world, essentially, uh, at, at, at a proxy war with each other via Ukraine, uh, you know, is, is supposed to create fear more so than it is supposed to, in my opinion, uh, actually be a nuclear threat. Now, this is my opinion, but I believe bo it's, it's in the United States' best interest to sort of argue that, hey, don't worry, we've got more nukes than they do. And the point of that is supposed to make people feel uncomfortable, right? And then that encourages politicians uh, and people to encourage their politicians to essentially spend more money on defense. Like, oh, prevent the use of nuclear weapons, right? Now, Russia has a policy 
of not using nuclear weapons unless they are attacked with a nuclear weapon. It's a long-standing policy. There's a reason we haven't used nuclear weapons since 1945. It's because we know as soon as one side uses them, we're probably looking at mutually assured destruction. This is where everybody starts pointing at each other and, and, and the number of red lines you would cross would be substantially greater than the red lines crossed, for example, in Syria when Syria during the uh, Obama administration used uh, chemical weapons that ended up being negotiated slightly differently, even though that was a stain on Obama's uh, reputation. Uh, you know, some suggest that Congress was able to mediate that situation in Syria substantially. Actually, surprisingly, with the help of Russia, because Russia was, was not too happy about what was happening uh, either, which is quite interesting to think that the U.S. and China actually, or the U.S. and Russia actually worked together. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, it, uh, my point here is, is to say that even though stuff like this circulates and we hear about, hey, Russia's now, you know, loading nuclear weapons and arms on, on warships, something they haven't done since the 70s, the Cold War, really, in my opinion, this is just sort of a revival of the Cold War, where the goal is to create fear uh, in the opponent, right? The goal is that Russia shows, hey, look, we're going to be protected. They don't want panic. Uh, in their country, uh, much like in the United States, we don't want panic here. Uh, and so I think the argument is, hey, well, let's let's all if if y'all don't want to panic about nukes, you know, we got the two biggest boys basically fighting with bombs, uh, uh, or at least uh, threatening to, then uh, then let's just spend more money on defense, enlist and join the army in Russia, you know, prevent the use of nukes. I think it's like the best recruiting tool that exists. Is like, well, if we don't spend more money on the war, if you don't join the war effort. We could be using nukes, <laughs> right? Uh, so a lot of this very, very common in war. Uh, now, it's it's just worth noting that right now the front page of a Bloomberg is talking about the story that well, someone I started with, with this idea that China wants to uh, urge state firms to drop big four accounting firms citing a data risk. Again, this is so uh, such a classic slapback at America for really things like the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, which suggests, hey, we want China to have less of our advanced technology, so China ends up stealing it anyway from companies like ASML. Uh, but, I mean, take a look at it. Here's, here's the article. Front page of Bloomberg. Chinese authorities have urged state-owned firms to phase out using the big, the four biggest international accounting firms, signaling continued concerns about data security, even after Beijing reached a landmark deal to allow U.S. auditors on hundreds, well, audit inspections on hundreds of Chinese firms listed in New York. Remember this drama that was happening years ago, the thought that a lot of Chinese ADRs, American depository receipts, could end up being delisted over here, and if you wanted to have liquidity for your shares, you'd have to somehow figure out to trade how to trade them, maybe in a, on a Hong Kong exchange or, or, or a Shanghai exchange, which is obviously a giant pain in the butt, opens up the idea that, hey, maybe it's a feature Robinhood create, could create. But then again, you've got companies here in America that uh, kind of get limited by the government because we kind of, like, this, this tension is by design. The whole purpose here, in my opinion, is to continue feeding the military-industrial complex of let's spend more money on weapons. I mean, think about this. In, in, on some regards, it makes sense because the idea at least, is, hey, well, we should spend more on, uh, on on weapons because obviously we don't want China or, or, or uh, uh, Russia to have an advantage over us. But this is something that, and I, I, I do not recommend uh, this particular source uh, for the, the most potentially factual information, but it does give you a characterization of, of sentiment. And I actually think uh, it, it, the characterization of sentiment is somewhat 
pretty accurate, at least for, for one side. Uh, and uh, that is um, Tucker, good old Tucker Carlson. Uh, he, uh, he showed um, essentially Mitch McConnell, hey, you know, the most important thing that we could do right now is make sure that we continue to spend money to win the war, essentially, in Ukraine, to support uh, Ukraine. And, uh, and, and so Tucker's argument is, hey, how come our opposition party is so in support of this war? We're supposed to be, have an opposition party. We're supposed to be fighting against more spending. But it seems as though the entire purpose of, of, uh, of both political parties is, is to expand uh, nuclear spending. And I, I don't know if, if the incentive is, is just GDP growth or, or having better weapons and shinier toys or more lobbying money. Who knows? <laughs> but, you know, we should look. Top five lobbying uh, companies in the United States. Maybe that'll give us a little bit of a view. We know the National uh, Rifle Association is one of the top five. The National Association of Realtors, I think, is uh, number five as well. U.S. Chamber of Commerce, number one. National Association of Realtors is actually number two now. Big Pharma, number three. Uh, then you've got uh, American Hospital Association, Amazon's up there, Meta's up there. Actually, that's interesting. You kind of have to go, Lockheed Martin is probably somewhere around, if, if you look at uh, individual companies, I'll just show it to you here. Lockheed Martin doesn't actually show up until over here uh, next to Alphabet and Comcast. That's pretty impressive. Uh, it's, it's obviously still very high, but I, I thought they would have been much higher. But anyway, quite interesting. This is why it's a good idea when you have a suspicion, look it up, <laughs> fact check yourself. Uh, but, uh, but look, I think most of this is saber rattling. Uh, and, and in some part, it, it's also politically popular, right? When, when, when you have the threat of nuclear warfare, it's like, hey, vote for me. I'm voting to make sure we're safe and protected. Like during a time of nuclear saber rattling, the last thing you want is to, you know, vote out the people who are, you know, at work to defend your safety and security. So a lot of this, in my opinion, is, is political jargon and back and forth. Uh, the same thing here with China and, and, and trying to expel the big four. It's, it's trying to uh, make these countries seem more independent. Those are just my thoughts and that's just my thesis. Uh, but uh, a lot of folks have been asking just because I've been making, uh, you know, some videos on, on this uh, Russian aggression and, and uh, Chinese aggression, sort of my thoughts on this. Uh, surprisingly, I, I, I think that most of the world is pretty much in agreement that the worst thing we could do would have, uh, be have uh, essentially any kind of unleashment of uh, a nuclear armed warfare. So it's not something that's in my forecast, obviously. Uh, it, it, you know, there's also the argument that if something like that ever were to happen, we're going to have bigger problems than our finances or stocks. Uh, so, uh, so, so maybe there's a little bit of a bias to that uh, uh, scenario anyway. Anywho. Uh, that's uh, those are my thoughts. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Putin speaking as a uh, lobbyist winning. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, no more. I no more Trumps for. Well, there, there's another argument as well that yeah, well of course defense contractors win. They've got massive backlogs. But there, yeah, there's there's a very common thesis that uh, oh this war would not have happened had Trump been in office. You know, it's always it, that's always a very political argument that, uh, oh, well, if so-and-so were in office, if so-and-so had won the election instead of so-and-so, X, Y, Z would have happened. You will, we'll never know, right? We'll never know. So I, I don't know how much that really matters or solves anything right now, but but I, I'm... Uh, 
I feel potentially blindly optimistic, so I'm, I'm aware of that, but uh, you know, based on, on study and, and research here, look, if, if we didn't end up using uh, weapons during, during previous conflicts, uh, just the odds of that happening here in 2023 where it's so publicized, uh, it, it seems a little bit more wild uh, to, to believe that, that this time is somehow different and that's it, now's the time to use the weapons, right? Uh, it seems a little odd. I, I think they're much better propaganda tools than they are actually weapons. Not from a propaganda point of view, they are fantastic from both sides because everybody remembers Nagasaki, Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima. There's just the death and destruction and the instantaneous uh, uh, terror that was unleashed uh, and, and, and how, how transformative that was. Uh, I, I don't think any country wants to go there today because there are no winners in a nuclear conflict. But from a propaganda point of view, they are fantastic tools, and we should have more of them. <laughs> That's the politician argument, not mine. I, I think they're pretty terrible. Anyway, all right. Now we've got to do a little bit of inflation talk, so let's chat about inflation a little bit. Uh, so let's see here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now this is an interesting uh, piece, and I've, I've put together multiple different pieces here, uh, so we can we can talk as educatedly as possible about uh, multiple of these different topics. But uh, obviously, inflation is is the greatest fear right now, uh, and, uh, and and so it's worth doing here a segment on inflation. So let's touch on this. Uh, da -da -da. You heard about the cycle of war, 17.7 years and 53-year cycles. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all there's always, of course, talk about you know, cycles. Uh, but don't worry, this time is different. <laughs> oh, I kid, I kid. Uh, yeah, it's um, it is interesting how how there can be patterns to uh, uh, to, to markets or or conflict. Uh, I I don't know how much. The, the patterns really matter other than potentially, you know, being an interesting afterthought. But um, I, I don't, I, I can't, I, I can't imagine that uh, conflicts arise after a certain period of time solely out of, um, uh, out of uh, timing. <laughs> you know, I, I think there are a lot of conditions that, that set in uh, to effect. So uh, anyway, okay, uh, history does not repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. It's very difficult because, well, I will tell you, I, I'm having a very hard time finding a rhyme uh, for the inflation that we're experiencing uh, right now. And that's because this is a, a, such an odd moment where you actually have uh, inflation in such a way that you've never had before, given that usually we have inflation that arises from war or inflation that arises from <laughs> uh, from, from a pandemic. Uh, but both together is, is, is quite remarkable. So we're, uh, we're in a very bizarre time. All right, let's talk inflation. <clears throat> the Economist just put out a phenomenal piece on inflation. We're going to touch on exactly what's in this piece, and we're going to talk about how this relates to the Walmart and Home Depot earnings calls. What did they have to say in uh, their numbers? Where are people spending money? Where are people not spending money? And is it possible that the tool that we could use to predict inflation is something that most economic forecasters have actually not been using. And maybe if we start using it, we could actually see the true expectations for inflation that are potentially a lot more accurate than what we've been using. Because who remembers, of course, oh, don't worry, inflation will be transitory. Now, don't worry, the transitory folks might still end up winning the war, but so far they've mostly and highly embarrassingly lost the battle. But there's a particular tool that might give us an idea of 
how inflation is going to act in the next few years. But first, let's get started with this piece from The Economist. Absolutely fantastic piece here. Lots of investors think inflation is under control. Not so fast, says the February, uh, says this uh, uh, edition of the this week's edition of The Economist. In 2023, it may yet do the same to the real economy. That is, the average economic forecaster thinks that a recession in America is essentially a definite outcome. When economists write the history of the post-pandemic era, the resurgence of inflation and central banks battle with it will be a defining story, they say. Fantastic. But where's the interest? Where, where are the arguments? Well, you've got two sides. You've got the optimistic side, the pessimistic side, and then the side of data that The Economist provides, and it's fantastic. Let's look at the optimists first here. So the optimists say they point to a growing pile of evidence showing that out of 25 economically developed countries, uh, 25 out of 36 of those countries, monthly data is showing headline inflation is falling, and the good news has been coming in for months. Forecasters had actually been overestimating how much inflation is potentially coming in for January and February. And then the three months to January, America's consumer prices rose at an annualized rate of just 3.8%, the lowest reading in two years, according to the last CPI report we got on V-Day. And that's not to be confused with V-shaped recovery day, it's uh, Valentine's Day. <laughs> uh, this time last year, central banks were thinking very different thoughts. We didn't actually have a falling inflation or inflation moving at 3.8%. Instead, we had inflation expectations that were highly unanchored and the worst was still clearly ahead of us with terrible inflation reads in the summer followed by some surprises in the fall. And that really led the Federal Reserve to embark on this incredible tightening cycle. Uh, however, an interesting note here, researchers at the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, a morning consult and uh, another uh, university here, published a, a, a new piece on inflation expectations together. And they find that between August and December, the median expected rate of inflation across rich countries has fallen by about a percentage point. Now, unfortunately, that started rising recently based on bond market signals that yes, inflation expectations had nicely fallen in the last three months of the year. In fact, you could see that here. I hide myself from the screen here. You could see the last three months of the year, yes, inflation expectations had been falling, but they're starting to rise again. So I think it's worth noting that in, uh, in the context of this econom uh, Economist article here. Uh, but really, uh, the argument here is that, hey, look, we're starting to potentially see core expectations of inflation fall below levels that we had in pre-pandemic America. And research suggests that searches for inflation are falling on Google substantially and that really inflationary pressures on, on, uh, on any sort of economic modeling are showing massive inflection points, that inflation is trending down. That's sort of the, the optimistic argument, right? And the optimistic argument, I believe, is buffered by the fact that most company earnings calls tell you, yeah, look, we had to raise wages and prices in 2022, but people are becoming more price sensitive. We think most of the embers of inflation are going to be gone uh, by the second half of 2023. The labor supply has increased substantially and so on. Now, unfortunately, you've got uh, some other information here as well. Uh, for example, here you have ultimately uh, this, this idea uh, that uh, financial markets might be overly enthusiastic about inflation falling. And that's because of this fear that the labor market is still overly tight. And when we look at things like the JOLTS report, 
That's exactly what we're getting. Very hot jobs report, very hot uh, jobs opening and labor turnover survey uh, for January. Some arguments are being made that, hey, these are just seasonal uh, implications from January and don't worry, these numbers are going to go away in February. Great, but that leads to a lot of uncertainty in February between now and obviously March and puts more pressure on the, mar uh, the, the data reports we're going to get in March. Uh, but the concern is you're starting to get sort of this rhyme of the 1970s, where in the 1970s, we temporarily saw inflation rotate down, and then we saw inflation come back. And that led to really policy failures, which created the Paul Volcker of the 70s. Now, of course, there are arguments to be made that, no, well, this isn't the 70s. Inflation expectations are relatively anchored, and that's true. Even though they're very volatile, they've been relatively range-bound, unlike what we had in the 70s when we left the gold standard, and we left uh, the, the era of price caps, government price caps, which when those price caps were removed, artificially led to massive surges of inflation because the market wasn't able to properly price goods and services beforehand. The oil shock of the 1970s, right? There are absolutely massive differences, but, what the Federal Reserve knows is they do not want to repeat those mistakes of the 70s. And so the thesis is, hey, just keep rates for as high as possible to make sure we can get inflation done and out of, uh, out of uh, the American economy. And then, of course, we've seen supply chains catch up. We've got a glut of ships, especially memory cards, rather than uh, a lack of supply. We had a massive surge of American demand because of stimulus money that was printed. Uh, and there's the argument from the optimistic point of view that, hey, well, you know, uh, the Federal Reserve operates with long and variable lags of monetary policy, which some say, no, those lags have actually shortened to about six to nine months. So they're actually not that bad anymore. But the big issue that the Federal Reserve is going to be paying attention to is wage pressures. And so far, at least the economists suggest, hey, wage growth is falling. And yeah, we've got high vacancies, but maybe there's a better model because so far we've got a lot of confusing data, right? We've got data suggesting, okay, so inflation is starting to fall. Maybe this time is different from the 70s, but how do we piece all of this together? Because the data is just so noisy and it's all over the place. And the data that we've been using historically has been wrong. I mean, after all, when the Federal Reserve talked about transitory inflation, they were terribly wrong after the burst of inflationary uh, stimulus that we got. So maybe there's a better chart that we could use to actually model inflation better. Because so far what we're looking at is very noisy. Hey, we look at CPI reports, which suffer from massive uh, fluctuations. You look at the JOLTS reports, which suffer from massive fluctuations. Even the labor report can't seem to count people appropriately, or you count it twice, or you count it three times via the differences of the household survey and the establishment survey. The numbers have been a mess. However, the economist thinks that they have found a solution. They suggest that there is one indicator that actually really appropriately provided the best warning that inflation was coming. And if you look at that level today, you could see that going back to 2019, the level of that indicator is 17% above its long-term trend today for developed countries. And consumer prices today are up about 14% above trend. In other words, Maybe this one supply could be the most accurate. And the economist went back and said, hey, had we applied this one metric, we would have seen that we were about to get a massive surge of inflation. And 
The Economist argues that the people who were actually pointing out this one piece of data were correct when they said, no, you can't print this much money and not expect inflation. However, those are the same people that are now saying inflation is probably going to turn around a lot quicker than we expect. And that data set is very simply the following on screen now. It is the M2 money supply and the growth chart of the M2 money supply, which is really just a measure of people's savings deposits, their time deposits, uh, in, in uh, money market funds, or, or, or basically money that you have available to spend, right? And this idea is that if we just look simply at nothing other than the M2 money supply, we know that when it surges, we are going to get a massive inflationary boost. And when that money supply begins to stabilize, inflation quickly goes to zero after a period of time. And after then another period of time, you end up actually with negative inflation, which is what we're seeing with that M2 money supply now. The Economist thinks this could actually be the most appropriate metric to use rather than just the noisy data that we're getting. And so it's interesting. You know, they talk about some risk factors. They talk about the idea of a Chinese recovery that we've regularly been talking about. The Chinese recovery not actually providing too terribly much of a boost to oil so far. There's this idea that, hey, maybe it'll increase oil prices by $15 and that'll lead to uh, another inflationary boost. However, oil prices have actually been falling during the reopening, probably because there was too much speculation around them. This is where we talk about the money supply being one of the few indicators to provide an advanced warning of inflation, how we are affected by the trends. And really, the argument today is being made that if we look at just the M2 money supply, potentially today, we have the best indicator that inflation is going to fall rapidly. Now, that's an idea, right? That doesn't mean it's a good idea or a right idea, but it's fascinating, especially since you've got a lot of Wall Street banks right now, including JP Morgan, Citibank, Morgan Stanley. A lot of folks aren't making the argument that we're, not, we're going to see this rampant surge of inflation, but the argument that's actually being made by a lot of banks right now is this idea that I'll draw out here, and it's this idea that, yeah, if you look at the M2 money supply, inflation is going to fall dramatically, but that's not the problem. The problem is the fact that the Fed is listening to noisy indicators like the JOLTS report, the labor report, or whatever, which would motivate them to keep uh, rates high for so long that they end up destroying the economy. That's the big fear. So in an investor, now we have to look at this and go, okay, great. So there's a lot of noisy data. Maybe the M2 money supply does say that inflation is going to go down. But then yet again, you've got a Fed who thinks, oh, we're not convinced that it's going to fall because they're not really paying attention to the money supply. Just like they screwed up the first time, now they're going to screw up again the second time. And that's a pretty unfortunate red flag, especially since the Fed might be unfortunately looking at data kind of like what you're seeing over in the Home Depot earnings call, where when you go to the Home Depot earnings call, you have a lot of talk about how in 2022, yeah, hey, people are becoming more price sensitive here uh, from 2022, but people have been less price sensitive than we have expected in the face of persistent inflation, says Home Depot. You know, that's not wonderful. We want to hear people are price sensitive, right? Hey, we would expect there to be some moderation in spending because of the house 
housing market slowing down. But so far, Home Depot says, nah, nah, we're actually not really seeing that. So far, our uh, spending uh, has has uh, normalized. And even if we end up having a slowdown, hey, you know what? Don't worry, we're only going to see earnings fall by a few percentage points. But in the meantime, what we're going to do is we're going to raise wages substantially because we still see a healthy consumer. And uh, Home Depot talks about how they're essentially going to spend an additional billion dollars on compensation for individuals. They do say that price sensitivity has been a little bit more broad in the fourth quarter compared to Q3. However, they're still very uh, optimistic. They see less spending on some of the discretionary items like grills and patio items, uh, really sort of optional items since you could probably just keep what you already have, right? Uh, but this is very similar to what we saw Walmart talk about as well. Uh, individuals spending less money on discretionary items, specifically things like uh, toys, uh, toys, and what did we have over here? We had uh, softness and toys, consumer electronics, home, and apparel. You're actually seeing Target almost, I've noticed at least anecdotally, shrink uh, the, the home improvement sector and try to uh, 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 enlarge other sectors like beauty. So I'm seeing beauty encroach more on the home improvement and sort of flowers and plants and that sort of section. And it sort of aligns with what Walmart's actually seeing, people spending more money on health and wellness, but less uh, on sort of general merchandise, consumer electronics, home and apparel. So you're seeing this, this consistency of, uh, of, of a shift in spending trends. Now, how does all of this really come together as an investor? Well, in, in my opinion, I think it's really clear that the most important signal we could pay attention to is the Federal Reserve. When are they going to recognize that, hey, you know what, if the M2 money supply is plummeting and we're about to get a massive bout of housing disinflation and year-over-year -year comparisons, which should drag inflation down substantially, uh, you've already got plenty of noisy indicators that are suggesting, yeah, potentially short-term hotness, but when we trend it out over three months, we're seeing substantial declines already, whether it's in core inflation. Uh, services still somewhat sticky though, right? That's one sector where we haven't seen uh, inflation roll over substantially yet. But then again, services didn't start inflating until about a year after after goods started inflating. So it sort of takes time for those embers of inflation to blow through the economy. So all in all, bottom line out of this sort of piece from The Economist and, and Walmart and Home Depot, well, probably my anticipation is, hey, this is where we wanna stay away from staples as investors. This is something I've been pretty consistent with. Staying away from staples in 2023 as investors, I mostly think that uh, pricing power stocks are going to perform a lot better in 2023. I think those were the easy ones to sell in 2022, and it was easy to sort of escape to staples. But the trends that we're seeing are that most of the staple companies are expecting uh, negative EPS. That's where you're probably going to see the largest earnings recession, which aligns with this idea that, yeah, the Fed's probably going to keep rates higher for longer, which is going to affect poorer people the most, which means less spending on staples. And yeah, eventually that M2 money supply should give us optimism that eventually the inflation will blow over. Uh, and that might end up being our most accurate signal. So if I had to, again, simplify all of this, 
Maybe we could take great comfort in the fact that the M2 money supply is falling, which historically has been one of the best indicators of inflation falling. And it certainly was one of the best indicators that we had that inflation was about to surge and inflation wouldn't be transitory, at least in the time frame that the Federal Reserve thought. Uh, and instead, we then look at, okay, well, then in the meantime, where are consumers going to spend? Well, potentially PP. Pricing power style stocks where people, where companies are still going to be able to sell their goods and services because they're either smaller and still growing, or they appeal or cater to potentially a higher income demographic or a higher uh, cash flowing business that is able to sell to other businesses, goods and services that are essentially investments. Uh, like a lot of companies are suggesting, hey, maybe one of the best places to invest right now could be in uh, battery manufacturing or a fabs for chip making uh, so that way uh, server infrastructure can continue to be built because if server infrastructure continues to be built, well then SaaS businesses can continue to succeed. Uh, and SaaS businesses are where we're actually seeing way less of a decline than we expected. SaaS businesses led by companies like Fortinet and Cloudflare and the earnings cycle have actually been doing substantially better than expected. And guess where they're seeing weakness? they're seeing weakness in the small business sector, which is generally the sector that has the lowest level of actual profitability and income. That's after all why they are called small businesses, because they haven't gotten to the level of large scale yet, because they don't have enough of a profitable product or pricing power. So uh, to me, it all aligns pretty clearly. We could be wrong, right? Knock on wood that we're not wrong, but the economist's projection here of massively declining inflation should give us confidence that eventually inflation will disappear. The question then is, how much did the Federal Reserve destroy markets? And where is that destruction likely to be worst? In my opinion, it's likely to be worse where the lowest income demographic creates the highest amount of spending. And that's in staples. It's in groceries, it's in foods, Tyson foods, plant-based foods, uh, it's, uh, it's in your Targets, your Costco's, your Sam's Clubs, your Walmarts, uh, any, it's the, the dollar store, essentially anything where you, you are selling to uh, basically everyone, right? Lower income, middle income, and higher income. Those are probably going to be hit the most in 2023. Just my opinion, even a, even a McDonald's. The reason for that is you are seeing more price competition. There's a reason, and I know this one sounds crazy, but there's a reason Whole Foods is saying, hey, we're going to start cutting prices even though it's going to cut into our margin. It's an Amazon company, obviously. Uh, and that's to put pressure on companies like Walmart to try to bring higher income consumers back to Walmart, right? And this creates pricing wars. And I think the place you're going to see the largest pricing wars are, are actually uh, in areas where we're looking at things people generally, quote unquote, have to spend on. Uh, foods, because foods, we'll see a limit to how much foods can really raise prices. Uh, now, people think that's remarkable, but if you really want to see where there's a limit on some of these staple items, read the earnings call from a company like Energizer or Tyson Food, and you'll see they're basically, as I've been saying, tanking it in the margin. In my opinion, and, and maybe in like an eerie way, it all aligns too well, because usually when things line up too well, you kind of wonder like, hmm, what are you missing? Well, then of course, yeah, you've got risk factors like, okay, well, what if China has a commodities, uh, you know, uh, put, put so much pressure on commodities that we end up seeing commodity prices skyrocket again. But then you wonder how much has that idea already been, been, been built into trades and 
so far it hasn't been materializing. That trade has been failing. This idea of $100 a barrel oil so far has not materialized remotely. If anything, it's trending in the opposite direction. We're seeing more fears about a recession and actually staple prices therefore coming down now rather than fears about, uh, about this runaway second wave of inflation. Uh, so again, that reiterates to me that, okay, fine, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, that's bad news uh, for potentially commodities. Uh, you've got bad news for uh, companies selling staples because there's a limit to how much they could raise prices, yet they're also having to raise wages. Now, some would say, hey, well, wait a minute, isn't that indicative of a wage price spiral? Well, not necessarily because a lot of the wages that are rising are in lower income sectors like your uh, Walmart staff, your, your uh, Home Depot staff, which actually bring your average hourly wage in America down, average hourly wage in America somewhere around 32 bucks an hour, whereas the average hourly wage is somebody working at a Walmart or Home Depot or fast food place is somewhere around 17 to $20 an hour. So you actually end up bringing wage pressures down. Of course, what do you do? You end up as long, and, and that, that the theory is that that should show up in consumer prices, right? Because companies will continue to pass on their prices. But so far, nobody's really still talking about hiking prices. There are some hot segments aviation still being one of those segments. And some of the companies like Johnson & Johnson and Staples providers suggest, hey, we've got, we've got our last sort of price increases setting in now, but that's it, we're done. Even the pet food suppliers are like, look, you know, we've, we've got a little bit more of, of pricing elasticity in us, but we're seeing a massive decline in, in pet household formation. People are starting to spend less money. Our pricing power is waning. Like we're almost done. We, we can't do any more much longer. So things in an eerie way are really aligning to suggest inflation will not be a substantial long-term issue. However, there is a lot of fear now that we're not terribly worried about that second wave of inflation. We're actually, because especially if we look at a, a strong leading indicator like M2 money supply, as the economist told us, but we're actually more fearful about the Federal Reserve overdoing it and over-tightening because of the noisy data we're getting. Uh, and that, unfortunately, is a potential reality that, yeah, we could go through a very, uh, as I've been saying, a very volatile Nike swoosh recovery. I think when we when we talk about the Nike swoosh, uh, people think I'm drawing something that's very, very smooth like this, uh, but they, they're forgetting the noisy part that I talk about, right? And the noisy part is are, are set up by days like what we had yesterday. It's substantial pain uh, in the stock market. So uh, some of my theses, uh, you know, but so far, uh, you know, we'll see. Financial conditions definitely are tightening. I've seen the 10 years sitting at about 3.95. Certainly a tightening of financial conditions, which is going to sort of continue to crimp uh, inflation without even the Federal Reserve doing anything. That again, I think the Federal Reserve is cognizant that they do have a dual mandate. They want to make sure that we don't unnecessarily force people into joblessness. Uh, so we'll see. Someone here says, so you're telling me not to hoard eggs and chickens to resell them. Yes, both of those have very small PP. Very, very small PP. La lacking pricing power. Just read some of the earnings calls for companies who uh, who actually supply those. <laughs> so be careful about that. Uh, the inverse Nike swoosh. The inverse Nike swoosh. Uh, that would Im imply a slow decline and a rapid increase. Uh, oh, 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 or unless you're saying I just didn't draw it well enough. Well, okay, uh, there, draw it kind of a little bit more like this, right? But the idea is that this is a very rapid decline and this is sort of a very slow, uh, slow and volatile up, right? There you go, a little bit better, a little bit better of a drawing. <laughs> uh, anyway, my thesis, 
We'll see. We'll see what plays out. But I, I, I think a lot of it uh, makes logical sense. But then again, I'll tell you, one, one place that isn't logical is the stock market. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead. Now uh, we've got to talk about uh, next piece. Let's jump into uh, a little bit of a Fed preview because we've got the Fed today and this one's a mess. Uh, and we've got to talk a little bit about bears and uh, their theses, but uh, let's jump into the Fed. So I'll do that, one sec, I'll take a little drink here. Alrighty. So Fed, 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 what do we got? All right, let's talk about a Z Fed. Today, the FOMC minutes get released for the February 1st Federal Reserve meeting. There's a lot of concern and tentativeness that the Federal Reserve meeting minutes are somehow going to show some sort of substantially more aggressive Federal Reserve. Honestly, I hate to say it, but I think that this Federal Reserve minutes set is complete nonsense. That's because mostly we already know what Jerome Powell told us, and I'll provide you a rough summary now. But we also know that these minutes came from before the noisy data that we got from January. Noisy and hot jobs data, noisy and hot CPI data, noisy and hot PPI data, noisy and hot PCE data, and of course, hot retail sales data and jolts data. Yeah, literally every report was pretty damn hot in January, but this meeting happened before all of those reports. So of course, we know just like when things are trending down, one month doesn't make a trend. When things are trending up, one month doesn't make a trend in terms of reports. And maybe the seasonal adjustments are going to be so hot for January that, uh, hey, you know what, February will be right back to sort of a hope for disinflation. My belief is things are going to be very noisy and very, very volatile this year. Long term, I expect substantial disinflation and I just hope the Federal Reserve doesn't overdo their hiking. But today, people are going to be looking for clues for exactly this. What kind of recognition of the potential risk of over-tightening is the Federal Reserve providing us? That's probably the biggest red flag that I want to be looking for in today's FOMC minutes. So if I sort of had to write down what I was looking for, my number one most important thing today would be indicators of fear of over-tightening. Remember, Jerome Powell was the one who originally told us, hey, if we over-tighten, we can always just loosen again rapidly. But then he quickly followed up with that by saying, ah, you know, but then again, this was about a month later, you know, we don't want to create a tremendous amount of economic pain and hardship for individuals, especially amongst those least able to bear it. In other words, lower income consumers who are already the ones suffering the most from this insane inflation that we've been dealing with. Now, yes, their wages have been rising more, but that doesn't help when literally everything is ridiculously more expensive, especially for the lower income individuals, including food and rent. So my big thing is I want to look at the risks of over tightening and potentially the Fed's willingness to overdo it, really hurting lower income consumers the most. Remember, American Express tells us wealthier people are the ones spending through the recession, not poorer people. But then again, American Express generally caters to a higher income demographic where companies like Synchrony or Citibank or Affirm are generally catering to a lower credit score and lower credit audience. As a result, higher default rates, higher credit loss reserves, and really more concerns that, uh-oh, maybe we're not actually being compensated enough for the risk we're taking. That's leading to a tightening of lending standards. And even what you saw at Affirm, the buy now later company uh, that uh, obviously generally appeals to a lower income uh, demographic, 
uh, buy now pay later company firm suggesting that, hey, we need to raise how much we're charging for these loans because we want to operate a profitable company and we're realizing, uh oh, we're starting to lose too much money on these loans. This is a problem. So what did the Federal Reserve have to say about the, uh, 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 you know, sort of in their last meeting and what could we expect as a preview today? Well, I want you to remember what the Federal Reserve started by talking with. Jerome Powell came out and said the following, quote, the full effect of our actions are yet to be felt. Even so, yes, there still is more work to be done. So what he's telling us is very clearly the Fed is acutely aware that there is a lag, some form of lag. We don't know what that is. Is it three months, six months, 18 months, who knows, to their monetary policy. And so, yes, there's still work to do to get inflation down. But how much of that can just occur by us holding or being closer to potentially pausing or right now what's most likely and most priced in is that we're just looking at 25 BP hikes. So we go 25 in March, we go 25 in May, we go 25 in June if we need to, and we just be data dependent and patient. But the biggest thing for me today is again, how willing is the Federal Reserve to ruin the lives of poor people? That is your biggest tell. Jerome Powell in the last meeting told us that higher mortgage rates continue to weaken housing. Weakening housing, in my opinion, is actually one of their big goals. Housing weakening is great for the Fed because you're basically just taking away from richer people because tenants are substantially poorer, like 20x poorer than, than homeowners generally on average. So let's take away from rich people by crushing housing. I personally believe the Fed doesn't care so much about crushing the stock market they want yields to be up. And so far, they've actually been engineering this perfectly. Yields, 10-year yields, for example, well, it went down to about 3.39% for a hot minute, but popped right back to 3.94%. We're almost, we're knocking on the door of nearly 4% on the 10-year right now. It's insane. You look at the two-year, I mean, some of the numbers you're getting right now are knocking on the door of 5%. It's crazy. Financial conditions are very, very tight. And if, if the housing market can soften, that should drag everything else down. Not so true as Princeton economist Robert Schiller has told us for the stock market. Now, keep this in mind, Jerome Powell does realize that yes, there's some signs of wage growth easing, but we're still out of balance. Job vacancies are very high, so we know that. He gave us that heads up, but he says despite job vacancies being high, and even after the hot jobs report came out, Jerome Powell's response was, hey, you know what? Financial conditions already responded and tightened. That doesn't necessarily mean we have to do more. That's what he said in an interview uh, with um, uh, Mr. Uh, Rubin, Dave Rubin, the day after the jobs report. It was fantastic. Uh, so really, in my opinion, I'm just expecting a reiteration of just, hey, look, we're going to keep it slow and steady, 25s, 25s, 25s. We don't want to cause unnecessary hardship. Any kind of indication like that to me is is somewhat bullish. And I, I say somewhat bullish because I think we've already tightened potentially too much. Um, but uh, but anyway, uh, Jerome Powell also, and it's, it's fascinating to go back to my notes. I love going back to my notes because you, you pick up things differently than you do the first time around. But, uh, you know, he talks about this idea that our policy should reflect financial conditions, which in his words, quote, have already tightened significantly. Now, their belief is that they still need to raise a little bit to get policy rates to be somewhat in line with those financial conditions. That's pretty clear. But we don't want to go too far because remember, there is that dual mandate. Uh, and so, of course, regarding the terminal rate, they haven't decided yet for March and May. That's fine. We expect to see a reiteration of that because we're going to get a whole nother set of data in March here. Uh, now, the other thing is, 
and this is probably the biggest thing for the Federal Reserve, is they say it's very difficult to know if we've done too little. And they're very cautious about prematurely loosening. And so this is fair. I do think when Jerome Powell tells us the disinflation process has started and M2 money supply is falling and wage growth indicators and the, en the embers of inflation are showing that they're going away, I do think it's clear we're going to have higher rates for much longer. But I do think we're leaning towards that pause pretty soon. Now, that's not to be confused with the Fed pivot, right? The Fed's certainly not going to cut rates until we actually see confirmation that inflation is falling. And remember, every time I bring up the pivot, it's important to remember the famous words, this time is different, the most famous dangerous four words uh, in investing. However, the reality is, if the Fed actually cuts rates this time around, they're doing so because they're convinced inflation is basically going away, right? Uh, and they've potentially just gone too far. But anyway, big thing uh, for the Federal Reserve on, on their forecast is, hey, look, still some work to do, but we want to be very, very careful that we're not unnecessarily crushing jobs. And Jerome Powell told us about the wage price spiral that, look, so far, so far, any fears of a wage price spiral are actually becoming less salient, that there is less evidence in the surveys they're doing, in the monitoring that they're doing, uh, uh, that they're, the conditions for a wage price spiral are actually present. Instead, we see a Jerome Powell who says, look, we see goods deflation, we see housing deflation. And then we're, not, we're, we're basically neutral on service inflation. That, yeah, look, we hope, he says, we hope that the disinflation process that we've seen in goods and housing will carry over to the core services segment, ex-housing. And he believes that we will see that very soon, that process begin. He does say, look, I'm neither op optimistic nor pessimistic, but his suggestion is, look, we should see that disinflation process start soon. So let's be patient. We're, as long as we're not cutting, we're potentially not over-tightening, right? So that's what I expect, is a stable, neutral Fed in these minutes that come out today that don't necessarily give us any cause for alarm. If anything, they'll give us cause for patience. And I think that's the most important thing to have in the market right now, because again, that Nike swoosh is going to be very, very volatile because there's so much fear, uncertainty, and doubt that pops up, especially around every time the Federal Reserve farts or says something. Uh, but a but few big things to really take away from this. Number one, I don't think today's minutes really matter that much because I think the market's just going to discount the fact that that happened before uh, the release of all the crazy negative reports that we got. However, if you're looking for something bullish, look for potential indicators that the Fed fears over-tightening. We already know they fear prematurely loosening. That's okay, though. The solution to that is easy. You just stay level. Like, you just get to 5.5% or 5.25% or whatever and just stay there and wait. Uh, uh, that's that's the easy part. And we've got potentially three cycles, with like we've, we've three Fed meetings to do so, and it actually gives us uh, February data, March data, April data, May data. Uh, that's four months of data before the June meeting, which would really take us above uh, the average of, of where the Fed was expecting to go in December. Got plenty of time for data. So really, the big thing is, what can you do to remove this idea from markets that, oh, that's it, the Fed's going to somehow, all of a sudden, uh, uh, Paul Volcker us, and we're going to get 50 BP hikes again, or we're going to go back to 100 basis point hikes. I don't think they're trying to send that signal of volatility. In fact, I personally think that would actually hurt their credibility. 
that they would rather stick with the 25s because they don't want to be seen as changing their minds too often. They want to be seen as, no, no, this is, we're on the right path. Remember when Jerome Powell came out, I think it was, uh, was it December? I think it was the December meeting. He came out, it's like, uh, he suggested, oh yeah, the, the soft uh, CPI reports we're seeing, uh, you know, we saw in November and October. Oh yeah, uh, we, we expected those. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, okay, they're, they're trying to make it seem like they're, they're still very much in control. And I think one of the best ways they can do that is by exhibiting patience, but also by uh, making it clear that they don't want to cause unnecessary pain, that they'd rather be patient at a certain level than just getting ridiculous and, and Paul Volkering us when it's not necessary. Now, of course, I think they can massage these minutes after the fact. The one place, that's sort of the, the other place that I would be looking is, are they trying to massage any kind of messaging about inflation break-evens? That might be a little bit more concerning given, given that inflation break-evens have been popping up on the right side. Though, you know, even though we've had this run-up in inflation break-evens, mostly on the backs of the January data, you know, I suppose if there's any kind of optimistic way to view this, you could, you could try to view this optimistically and say, hey, look, okay, it's noisy, but it's still a ballpark downtrend, right? Uh, or you could even say, hey, you know, whatever, it's, it's stable. Look, we could just channel this. See, look, okay, look, even the channel trend is slightly down. Just wait for some more disinflationary reports and that goes away. So I think there are ways to talk that away and the Federal Reserve might do that. But uh, bottom line out of all of this, I'm, I'm not terribly bearish on the FOMC minutes today. It, to me, honestly, the fact that we have minutes coming out today is slightly a bit of an eye roller. Uh, but hey, you know what? If, if we could take anything away, uh, including fears of over-tightening, uh, I think that would actually be a, a, a bullish element. So we'll see. But anyway, those minutes come out at uh, 11 a.m. Pacific time. So uh, buckle up. Yeah, what will happen if we return to a 75 BP hike? No, 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 no. Like, I, I, there's no way. Uh, and, and I mean, I, let me just put it this way. I think you're probably looking at like a less than 1% chance that could happen. Because really, I think the Fed's in this, this mindset of if we send the signal that we're changing our minds, then they will lose whatever credibility they have left. Because it will send the signal to markets that things are out of control uh, and that the Federal Reserve is incapable of doing their job. And then you will literally send a signal to markets that, oh, damn, uh, we're going to need to get Paul Volcker. Uh, so, and I don't think that's necessary right now because the leading indicators are not suggesting that. As we've talked about with the M2 money supply, as we've talked about with, with um, uh, you know, leading indicators, I, I, I think, I don't even think there's a likelihood of you seeing a 50 BP because, again, it changes the credibility of the Fed. They're, they're, they're kind of thick, 25, 25, 25. When they pause, like when that pause actually happens, they're going to be willing to stay there for a while. I'm not expecting cuts anytime soon, and neither is the bond market anymore. Originally, we were thinking cuts maybe at the end of this year. That's been pushed off to next year. And also the idea of a recession this year has, has somewhat been delayed. So uh, uh, so what if they do a, a psychological hike and cut? Wait, what? Do a psych hike and see? But no, no, no. That's not what the Fed's trying to do. Like they're not trying to psychologically you know, F with you. Uh, they, like, they're trying to be very clear about their messaging and then do what they say they're going to do, right? They, they don't want to send volatility because that's how you break things. 
It's literally how you break things. Like the financial markets are very fragile. And what you don't want to do is start like throwing around stones. Like the Fed's kind of walking through a glass house right now. And you don't want to happen what happened in the United Kingdom where you break the bond market and the Federal Reserve has to bail out markets. So that's the last thing the Fed wants to do right now because then you could get your double dip of inflation or, or, or sort of your, your double bump of inflation and a double dip crash, right? So the last thing the Fed wants to do is, is, is like, uh, start throwing stones and start being like a loose cannon here. That's that's not that's not at all remotely the the indication uh, of of what the Federal Reserve's goal is, whatsoever. I don't see that at all. Who knows? I could be wrong. At least I'm willing to make willing to make a point here. And uh, really, you know what I think suffers the most from higher for longer? It ain't stocks, folks. It ain't stocks. Stocks will be. I, I so strongly believe stocks will be totally fine once we're convinced that the big problem of a potential Paul Volcker goes away. That's the biggest fear I think markets have. I don't even think markets give a crap about the potential for a recession or negative EPS. I really don't think that's what people really care about. Not at all. Why do I not think that? Well, I don't think that mostly because the Fed or, or markets care most about these potential exogenous shocks of getting a Paul Volcker, right? That that you end up having to absolutely destroy markets. Uh, that I think is what the market is most worried about and most hedging for. A slight recession, whatever, man. Okay, so staples are gonna have negative earnings, GDP slightly negative, whatever. The smart companies will go, will just be investing and using it as an opportunity to build, right? My belief, could be wrong, but it's my belief. So what actually gets destroyed when in the higher for longer element? Real estate, housing. Housing is where, where, where the SH9T show shows up because that is directly affected by rates substantially. So higher for longer, when you hear that, like it's like when, when the Fed pauses and we're at the higher for longer level or even we're doing these nominal 25 BPs, this is a sign the Fed's in control, slowly getting the inflation out of the system, Things are looking better and better and better as time goes on, like the trend is going in the right direction. We're just gonna be patient here. That patience ruins real estate. It's actually good for stocks. There's a reason we're off the lows because the, the fear of, of uncontrollable inflation is going away. Of course, January reactivated some of those fears, but that's okay. We expect that sort of volatility. Uh, you know, Carlos here says, dream on if you believe in 2% inflation. See, but your problem is you're not actually referencing a time frame here. I don't think the Federal Reserve thinks inflation is going to go to 2% this year. Sure, that might be a dream, but that's because it takes time for inflation to fall out of the system. I mean, look how long it's taking for rent inflation to go to work its way through the system. Rent inflation is still going up, and we already know the current data is saying it's plummeting. So it takes a long time for this data to actually show up. It's such lagging garbage, it sucks. But look, when are we gonna go back to 2% inflation? Who cares? It could be 26, 27, 28, 29, doesn't matter. As long as we're trending towards that, I'm a big believer that, the, that stock markets can go from hedging for a new Paul Volcker to a recovery the slow Nike swoosh recovery. We don't actually have to get back to 2%. Remember folks, they could pull hat, the, 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 um, uh, the, uh, the fate genie out of the bottle, right? Flexible average inflation targeting. We could, we could literally have a 10 year cycle folks of inflation above 2%. 
and a 10-year cycle before the pandemic of inflation below 2%. And guess what the Fed does? Oh, look, the average was 10% or, or was 2% over a 20-year period. Like, hello. <laughs> yeah, so so there's uh, uh, like this, this, this idea that, oh, yeah, we're not going to stop until we get 2%. Man, everybody's forgotten about fate. And, and the patience that's possible. But again, that patience screws housing. So my belief uh, about housing, and this is a very important one. I want you to like, you know, this is, uh, I, I really believe this. I believe you are better off not buying real estate where you think the bottom is like right here. I think you're better off focusing on real estate when you have absolute confirmation that you're not actually double legging down, right? So in other words, I would rather buy real estate here than I would buy real estate here. Even though that's roughly the same level, I would rather be patient because I, I, I think that as long as these 10 years sit around 4% we, and, and we might be here with some silly January and December data, I think that's what's ahead of you. Uh, and, and that's solely looking at the 10 year and what we're seeing in terms of the potential for year-over-year fear, rents, and uh, institutional liquidations. So, uh, anyway, when was it set in stone we needed to be at 2%? Well, that was actually really the problem. That was the fault of the Fed. Uh, they, they uh, uh, over the last three years, they've basically massaged that into markets. Uh, you know, back in the 70s, uh, actually the late 80s, what am I saying? After Paul Volcker, the Federal Reserve utilized a strategy known as opportunistic disinflation. And they basically just took their time to get back down to uh, 2% inflation. And that time was somewhere around 25 years uh, to get back down to uh, 2% inflation. So it took, took a, a dramatic amount of time. It's really incredible. All right, now I want to look at the uh, a potential bear piece that we have here from JPM. Mm -hmm. The JPM bears. All right, so now I always like to try to provide as much uh, uh, information as I can on uh, on both sides, just so we we're not. Uh, blinded by uh, uh, some form of Achilles heel we were not paying attention to. But um, let's, uh, let's jump into uh, the, uh, the, the bear case scenario here a little bit and get some insight here. Okay, one second, actually five. Now we gotta bring up the bear case again. You know, I don't like uh, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, but I pay attention to it because I need to know what I could potentially be missing. This is really important, and JPM tells us exactly what the problem is, and it's really interesting. Take a look at this. JPM, and this is a piece out uh, from uh, Feb 20th here. Uh, JPM published this and says, look, the equity market rebound since October is drawing investors in. Many who were convinced Last summer, that any rally should be seen as a bear market rally are now uh, nurturing increasing optimism that a recession can be avoided altogether and that earnings remain resilient. However, while looking forward and we believe that Q1 will stay robust, we do not expect there will be a fundamental confirmation for the next leg higher and see the rally fading as we move through the quarter. With quarter one potentially marking the stock market high for the year. Now that doesn't sound great, right? The high for the year, you look at the QQQ fibbies, man, come on. 
This being the high, lame, absolutely lame, right? Look, zoom out for a sec. Look at the QQQ. We get rejected at 311.99 on, on the Fibonacci's. There we go on screen. Now we get it rejected by 311.99, falling back to about the 289 support level. And if that ends up marking a high for a year, well, damn, that sucks. That's going to set up for a boring 2023. Why does JP Morgan think that? Why are they so bearish? Well, let's see what they say. Number one, yield curve inverted. Remember, we've never escaped a recession from this point of the inversion. And they're right. Now, some people make the counter argument that the reason the yield curve is so freaking inverted is because we expect rapid, massively rapid disinflation. And that's why you're seeing uh, basically two-year yields on, on two-year bonds that are way higher than the 10-year long-term. Basically, the bond market's telling you, look, somehow we expect massive disinflation. These yields aren't going to last. Now, that would be really weird because it would be the first time in history that we have had a yield curve steepening and not a recession. But just think about this for a moment, okay? Uh, like logically for a moment, because I, I, think, I think there's a lot of confusion when we hear the yield curve. I understand it's a very complicated concept and I'm not professing to know it perfectly myself, but let me just try to make this very, very simple. If the two year bond yield is 5% and the 10 year is 4%, then what you're really saying is, hey, look, in the future, I actually don't expect inflation to be that high in, in, in uh, you know, 10 years down the road. But over the next two years, I do expect it to be very, very high. And so in other words, that is one way you could potentially explain away the inverted yield curve, simply from an inflationary argument that I need more compensation today than I will in the future. That is the easiest way to explain away the yield curve. However, it is not the traditional way to explain the yield curve. Generally, a yield curve inversion occurs because markets are expecting massive disinflation, not because of just, you know, like, okay, the disinflation's happening. They expect it because of massive job losses, people spending less money, and you actually going into a deep recession. That's usually why you see a yield curve inversion because the market's like, uh, yeah, we think there's gonna be rapid disinflation from the market crashing, not because it's naturally going away. So that, that does make the yield curve a little bit more like, okay, like historically it's been big recession coming. Could quote unquote, very dangerous words, this time be different? Maybe it hasn't been historically, but that is the counter argument to JP Morgan's warning signal here. Money supply moving lower and decelerating rapidly, that's actually a bullish argument. That is a bullish argument that if money supply is potentially a leading indicator for massive disinflation, then, then great. However, it leads to the idea that, uh-oh, this could actually indicate a contraction coming, right? Recession coming. I believe you're more likely to see that earnings recession and consumer staples JP Morgan here arguing basically across the board, but that's again, because they're also looking at the indice levels uh, and the indice levels represent a lot of consumer staples. Banking lending standards are tightening and have tightening, uh, have tightened. They make the argument as we've heard many times before that, oh, usually, you know, when we see the Fed pivot, maybe it's going to be because they've actually really crushed the economy so much. 
and that is possible. You know, we've talked about that many times on this channel, that in my opinion, when the Federal Reserve pivots, it's because they're so convinced we're not going to get Paul Volcker, that actually be a good thing. The counter argument is no, the Fed's only going to pivot when they break something. And they're about to break our economy because they've raised rates so high. At the same time, as you still have quantitative tightening occurring in the background. Now, some of the data that they use, I think, is unfortunately very misleading. I'll show you what I mean when I say some of the data is misleading in the charts right here, especially in relation to that mortgage chart, which I'll show you in just a moment. But I want you to see some of these charts. So just to really catch you, catch you up really quickly, here's a chart on the 10-2 yield curve inversion, which shows you basically a recession uh, coming after every single inversion. You see the red circle shows you inversion. Blue, sh uh, which I'm going to highlight here as a green circle, shows you recession coming every single time. But don't worry, this time is different. That's that's the bull argument, right? Again, for the reason that I've explained. Average recession usually starts 16 months after reserve, uh, you know, uh, 16 months after the inversion. However, here they do also recognize the bull thesis. They say here there's a growing view that the yield curve will not work as a recession signal this time around. We have sympathy with some of this, in particularly the point that the yield curve at present could be predominantly pricing in a sharp level of disinflation ahead. This is essentially what we just explained. So they, are, they, they see that. However, they worry that the Federal Reserve will not pivot because the labor market is such a lagging indicator of any kind of recessionary cycle, the Fed is really blinding themselves to keep rates higher for longer to make sure they don't lose any more credibility because they were so hurt in the first cycle that the Fed is probably going to keep looking at lagging indicators like jobs, and hopefully they don't, but if they do, they're going to cause a deep recession, and that's going to hurt, and that's why potentially a pivot from the Fed could align with pain. Now, this is where they show tightening lending standards. Okay, fantastic. Uh, but this, I think, uh, well, let's see here. That is the employment cost index showing you a little bit of leveling. We think it's unlikely the Fed is going to cut anytime soon. Great. Okay, these two charts right here are the ones that I think are a little bit misleading, which they are using as a bearish argument. Take a look at this. They show this chart here of U.S. mortgage payments as a percentage of income. And they show you this massive, massive skyrocketing of, oh my gosh, U.S. mortgage payments as a percentage of income. This is so freaking high. So this is not true, though, because most people have fixed-rate mortgages. So this chart actually only shows you U.S. mortgage payments as a percentage of income for new purchases. Oh, come on, man. That doesn't affect the vast majority of people right now. That just affects the current housing market, which I already agree. I think the current housing market is screwed. But that's not a surprise right now. But I think this is a misleading bear piece. Uh, and so I think you can dismantle that. Just like I think you can dismantle this idea that, oh, the U.S. savings rate is so low, that means, you know, the market's going to go into a deep, dark recession. Fine, the U.S. savings rate is low, but where is your mention of uh, a survey data and Bank of America survey data, which we know you're seeing as well because Jamie Dimon talks about it. Jamie Dimon literally said in the earnings column, this is a J.P. Morgan piece here, Jamie Dimon literally says, hey, uh, yeah, lower income consumers might actually run out of their excess savings by the end of the year, but higher income consumers still have plenty of excess savings. There's a reason why Bank of America says people who had two and a half to $5,000 of excess savings now have somewhere around $12,800 in excess savings. Savings, which is only down 3 point, uh, or 4.4% from last year where they had about $13,300 of excess savings. So in other words, 
you get like this insane amount of excess savings still available to where, in my opinion, JP Morgan's bear arguments here really narrow down. I don't think you could use the savings rate as a bear argument. I don't think you could use US mortgage payments as a bear argument. And consumer debt service payments as a percentage of disposable income are roughly at the same levels we saw in 2015, 16, 17, 18, and 19. So I don't, I don't know. The biggest bear argument that I can agree with them on, uh, and, and then of course we've got this like blurriness about the idea of what does the inverted yield curve really mean. It's not entirely clear that slightly tightening lending standards are really going to be a bear argument. I think the one thing that we could really agree on is the Federal Reserve seems to be convinced that they need to look at lagging indicators. So a lot of the bear argument that JPM is making here, I personally dismantle, but the one piece that I really give them credence to is this idea that the Fed is looking at lagging wage indicators. And this is why in the Fed FOMC minutes today, I'm really looking for any indicators that they are aware of the laggingness of wages. And that really they should ignore the jolts and the labor reports and such because they may have already gone too far with tightening and they may break something. That is the bear case. The Federal Reserve breaks something. They then have to print money to bail out markets. They print money and bail out markets. And then after they print money and bail out markets, they actually reinduce inflation because now the money supply is expanding again. <sighs> it's exhausting. So that's the big red flag is, is a Fed that goes too far. But but like this this idea that that inflation for sure is, is, is getting ridiculous. I just don't see it. It's just not in the data. So now we've got to touch on Xi Jinping. Uh, let's jump into that. Okay. Stand by one second. Now we got to talk China, and I think it's really useful to look at what China's priorities are, especially what they are telling their country their priorities are, because I'll tell you, there is a lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt right now about the relationship of potentially China providing lethal weapons to uh, Russia, while at the same time, the United States is providing weapons to Ukraine, suggesting this real, uh, is essentially world war we're seeing. We know that China is trying to expand their nuclear stockpile at the same time as you've got Russian saber rattling. There's a lot of pain around the potential idea of China invading Taiwan. China just had a Chinese person, Chinese dude, steal advanced chip manufacturing uh, schematics and, and manufacturing plans from the Dutch company ASML to, pro to provide advanced chip making capabilities to China, potentially for three and two nanometer chips. Uh, which the United States has banned China from being able to buy that equipment. So China's threatening to make their own. While at the same time, China's like, we're going to phase out using the big four auditors because F you America. Like things feel really like tense and scary right now. But I think it's really useful to look at what Xi Jinping actually provided as a speech to Chinese. Because it's somewhat useful to look at the translation of this because I believe that what is happening in public policy is giant saber rattling and what Xi Jinping is actually saying to his to his country is really the primary goal and I think when you listen to the speech because you might think like oh well what if it's just brainwashing or manipulation that's fair you know I got some tinfoil too okay but I actually think what he's saying here is very important uh and and very realistic so let's take a look at this 
So the first priority that Xi Jinping has is investing in expanding domestic demand. In other words, they are providing stimulus to uh, businesses and infrastructure to make sure they can do whatever they can to actually continue to grow. Keep in mind, China's population just shrunk. So, and that's the first time their population has shrunk uh, and, and really leading to this idea that, uh-oh, we don't want to turn into Japan where all of a sudden we don't have GDP growth anymore and we just basically stagnate. We want to make sure we're really supporting growth. Uh, lending standards for, for uh, Chinese housing have been relaxed. The three red line policy has been relaxed, which led to a massive burst in the housing bubble of China. Home prices down somewhere between 30 to as much as 45% in certain areas. China going as far as looking at unsafe high-rises that were built in, in ghost towns and starting to demolish them. So in other words, that housing can be rebuilt appropriately and in a safer standard to where it's needed with the support of government stimulus. And so they say here, look, they, it's their words. First, give priority to the recovery and expansion of consumption. China's new industrialization, informatization, that's a fancy word, urbanization and agricultural modernization have been further promoted and consumption has increasingly become the basic force to drive economic growth. Xi Jinping is literally opening it up his speech by saying consumption will drive our economic growth. That's true in America, folks, but guess where it's not true? China. It's not true in China because what? Oh, wait. Ah, the consumer only makes up about 32% of the Chinese economy. Real estate makes up most of it. Uh-oh, but what did you just screw up? Oops, the real estate market. And once bitten, twice shy, the Chinese are saving a lot more money than people expect. And yeah, higher-end brands like Hilton and LVMH are pretty dang excited uh, at the reopening. And they're seeing a nice, juicy rebound, which is fantastic. But it's going to take a while for every Chinese consumer to actually yeet it into such levels of consumption that you could support the levels of GDP growth that you previously had. The Chinese government realizes this. And I think because they realize that they've really got to boost the consumer much like America did, you're going to be in a situation of, uh-oh, wait a second, we might not grow like we used to. And if we don't grow like we used to, uh-oh, uh, because we're too busy saber-rattling and threatening war, then we're going to lose a lot of clout uh, in the international community and we could actually negatively affect the future of our growth even more. Because if China is not growing, why would you want to invest in China if you're, say, Apple or Tesla or other companies? Where are you going to go instead? You go to India, Mexico, Taiwan, right? It's not what China wants. So China's making it very clear. Consumption is a function of income. Therefore, it's necessary to increase the income of individuals as their income goes up and they have more access to consumer credit. They'll be able to spend more money. Duh. So really, China's trying to do what America's been able to do for the last 50 plus years, which uh, really is, is increase income for individuals. That's the goal. Number one, as much as China waves the saber of, of pain, uh, it's very, very clear. They want to invest. And so that's why they're accelerating their 14th five-year plan, whatever. But part of that five-year plan, they say it's necessary, this is very interesting, to liberalize market access for private investment and encourage more private capital growth in the construction of major national projects, uh, you know, really making up for shortcomings. But look at this. China's actually waking up to the idea of, damn, maybe capitalism is the way to do it. Maybe we've been supporting growth for too long with 
government projects, but now we've built and the people didn't come because crap, our population declined. And damn, we had this stupid policy called the one child policy, not to be confused with the one China policy, the one child policy, which doesn't exist anymore, but absolutely led to birth rate declines. And guess where the rich people are going? They're leaving. The rich people go into different areas like Singapore. They're taking their money out of China. And in part, because China has not accepted capitalism. Uh, and, and it looks like here via this speech, they're actually trying to increasingly open up to the idea of private investment as a factor of growth. They also want this economic cycle to be smooth. Well, you can't have a smooth economic cycle if you invade Taiwan. So if you're an investor who's like, no, nah, no, man, China's gonna invade Taiwan. Come on, no. China's goal is for Russia not to suck, to Russia, to Russia to end the war in Ukraine because the more Russia spends on Ukraine, the lower the Russian GDP uh, goes, the less Russia can actually have their country invest with China. And instead, they're focused on working with Iran on building suicide kamikaze drones when that money could be going into, I don't know, building a, a Russian EV, which would probably suck anyway. But at least it'd be something better than building bombs that are just getting sent over to Ukraine. It's stupid. China doesn't really benefit that much from that. That's, of course, China is thinking about, hey, maybe now we could start providing some lethal weapons to you. And in the meantime, we'll buy your cheap gas. But come on, you don't want to destroy your biggest trading partner. One of your biggest trading partners. What else do we have? Effective implementation of two unwavering. All right, basically here. For some time, there have been some incorrect or even wrong comments in society about whether we will still engage in a socialist market economy and therefore adhere to unwavering. We have a clear attitude and to be unambiguous, we will always adhere to the direction of a socialist market economy. That's what they argue. They say that. And they talk about three-year reform of state-owned enterprises and how great this has been. However, look what they're saying at the same time. They're talking out of both sides of their mouth because they realize socialism isn't the sole answer. Optimize the development of the environment of private enterprises and promote the development of private enterprises. The private economy plays an important role in the economic and social development, employment, fiscal taxation, scientific and technological innovation. They realize they're falling behind. They're falling behind on creativity because when they state run everything, what's your point? What's the point of being creative and innovating? You're going to get paid the same anyway. It doesn't matter. And the government's going to take all the profits. Well, then you don't innovate. And then you, you don't get more tax revenue. Then you're, then you're not actually building GDP. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth, realizing, look at this, we should improve the fair competition system, oppose local protection and administrative monopolies, and open up more space for private enterprise. This is actually a fantastic speech because it shows you there's like a waking up happening in China. Oh crap, our population's declining. Oh no, our GDP is starting to suffer. It is necessary to strengthen the communication and exchanges with foreign businesses to provide the greatest conveniences for the foreign businessman to come to China. Yeah, because so far they've been leaving. Uh, effectively prevent and resolve major and economic financial risk. All you're going to do if you go to war with Taiwan is make that even worse, right? So again, this speech is like a phenomenal speech that should give you a lot of enthusiasm that China has massive goals of streamlining what's happening in the world eliminating war and focusing on transitioning to a smoother economy and one that can grow again. Look at it. I mean, they, how many times do they use the word smooth in this? Be remarkable. Eliminate the disadvantages of high yield debt, high leverage, high turnover development model over the year and promote the real estate industry to the development of a new model, a smooth transition. You know, I just want to do a quick command F 
on the word smooth in the speech. Oh, they actually only mention it twice, but it seems like they're, they're saying the same thing in many different ways, right? Third, prevent and resolve the debt risks of local governments. This is because local governments that, that have put so much money into uh, local real estate bonds have been getting reamed. So they're really talking about, hey, we got to solve the debt crisis. We got to smooth out the fact that the real estate market has absolutely gotten crushed. But we want to focus on more private markets, more private enterprise. How can we put together socialism and capitalism? How can we combine those things? And how can we mitigate further risks while actually encouraging people to invest in China and innovate in China? Well, you don't do that by going to war. You do that by ending the war, encouraging the ending of the war with Russia, which there's a reason one of the top, a top, a top diplomat from China is in Russia right now, in Moscow, and potentially is going to unveil their sort of master plan for peace in Ukraine uh, on the one-year anniversary, which is this Friday, February 24th. So it'll be interesting, but... If, if you're seeing headlines about like China and you know saber rattling and all this, in my opinion, it is the complete opposite of the core of what China is actually trying to do. They're not trying to encourage more warfare, uh, you know, this whole weather balloon stuff and, and the chip stuff. And, and this, a lot of this is saber rattling and, and, and political uh, uh, jargon and nonsense, in my opinion. But long term, uh, I, I think China's goals are very, very clear. They're realizing their economy is suffering and the goal is to encourage capitalism because that's how you create innovation. So I think big U-turn from China that provides a much more realistic view of what the Chinese future should look like. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, it's going to be very interesting. Uh, we've literally been following Japan's footsteps. Well, we'll see. Mm, that, that's another idea, too, is that you end up going into, like, stagflation. There's no growth from anywhere, right? Uh, uh, so it'll be fascinating. But but look, uh, the, the relationship between China and Russia is strengthening. Obviously, China's economy uh, or, or Russia's economy is substantially smaller than, than the trading partners that the United States has with, with the West, uh, substantially larger economies than Russia. But anything you look at uh, shows China's very, very clear alliance uh, with Russia and how they would benefit from not seeing Russia fall into an even smaller uh, uh, economy, and they would benefit strongly from a, a, a much uh, more resilient Russia uh, from an economic point of view, and not necessarily militarily. So, so it's it's things like that that when people ask me, like, oh, do you think China's going to invade Taiwan? Do you think China's actually going to make uh, the war in Ukraine worse? No, I don't, I don't think so. Here's why I don't think so. It doesn't mean I'm going to be right. I don't know what they're ultimately doing. Who knows? Maybe this is all just propaganda and bullcrap, and they're going to do none of this. That's possible, too. Uh, oh, look at this. China's foreign ministry, China is willing to work with Russia to deepen political trust, extend pragmatic cooperation, and play constructive roles for both uh, promoting peace and world development. This is literally just out. This was literally just tweeted here. First squat, five minutes ago. China appreciates Russia's willingness to resolve Ukraine crisis through negotiation. Sounds great. Uh, China will maintain objective and impartial stance on Ukraine crisis, though, but they'll play a constructive role in the settlement of the Ukraine crisis. China will play, uh, let's see, China will maintain objective and impartial stance. Okay, that's reiterating the same thing. China, da, 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 uh, that's about China appreciates the willingness. That's fine. We read that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically, uh, you know, it sounds like... Uh, uh, what we're talking about uh, pr pretty well. So anyway, I gotta go. I gotta get to the course member live stream. Thank you so very much for being here, folks. We'll see you in the next one. Goodbye. Thanks for being here.